and welcome to Inclusion Europe Radio. Ambitions. Right. Belonging. Hello, dear listener. Welcome to the fifth episode of our conversations at Inclusion Europe Radio. My name is Milan Schwerepa. I am Director of Inclusion Europe. And in this episode, we will talk about care. About what care means to people, what care is and what care should be, and how to change the things we don't like about care today. We will also talk about how disability rights influence or don't the way care is being talked about, thought about and delivered. And I am sure we will touch on many other topics. Our guest today is Neil Crowder. Neil is from the United Kingdom and currently works as freelance consultant. But trying to introduce Neil in more detail is a bit challenging. In fact, Neil himself struggles with it, writing in his blog, what do I do? I find myself struggling to answer. Neil, welcome to Inclusion Europe Radio. And please tell us, what do you do? <laughs> Thanks, Milan, for that easy first question. So you challenged me to think about this. I think it's probably fair to say that throughout my working life, I've been focused in one way or another on advancing the rights of persons with disabilities or disabled people, as we would say in the UK, usually in different roles and in different fields. I worked for the Disability Rights Commission here for several years and the Equality and Human Rights Commission before I went freelance. I've also worked on projects across Europe and internationally. And I guess in the most recent years, been focusing more and more on independent living or how to transform care and support systems so that they advance independent living in different ways. I guess what I would say is that what interests me is really the processes of social change. How do you make that change happen? I'm not a lawyer. I'm not simply a policy person or a research person. I'm interested in how change happens. So I think that's probably how I would distinguish my role in what I do and what I focus on. I think that's exactly why I was interested to talk to you. We encounter each other often on some Twitter conversations about social care or independent living or deinstitutionalization. I took a lot of interest in what I think is a significant part of what you do and that's social care future. So please, uh, let's start by introducing what social care future is. What is it? Why is it? We often say social care future was born of frustration but it's powered by hope. It sounds a bit cheesy, but I'll explain what I mean by that. It came about, I guess, in the sort of, around about 2017, we began to sort of talk about a sense that, I think others have felt this, for all the gains that were made around transforming thinking around care and support towards personalization, towards choice and control. And, you know, in England, that kind of reached a pinnacle with the Care Act in 2014, which embraced a lot of those values and principles and ideas. But despite that, it emerged in the midst of austerity. And not only did austerity have an impact on the overall availability of support for people with really horrible consequences for people in terms of their ability to lead a good life, it also seemed to kind of just change the debate quite dramatically. So by then, Everyone was just talking about care as though it was just life and limb, personal care delivered to people. There was no sense it had any kind of higher purpose or any focus on the lives that people should be able to lead. And the focus very much just on funding without any debate about what that funding was for or what it should do. Very much about just centred on people's ability to pass on the wealth in their own homes to their adult children when they died and, and nothing more than that. And so it felt like the space to kind of think about something else had shrunk and we wanted to create that space. One of the ways that we believe was important to do that was that people who themselves drew on social care should have a powerful voice in that debate. There's a major conference that happens on social care once every year in November. And we've been really trying to get the organisers of that to change so that they changed the way it was organised. So there was that stronger voice for people and we just weren't getting anywhere. So we decided to hold a three-day event alongside that conference in Manchester, which was a real success and several hundred people came. What it showed was how different an event could be. We had a total mix of people there, but everybody in the room had an equal stake and an equal status, whether they worked in social care, whether they directed it, whether they studied it or whether they themselves drew on it. 
And from there began this idea of social care future. It gave us the confidence that we could do something different. So we are a social change movement. We believe that people should be able to lead great lives and that the function and the purpose of what we today call social care, when we think about something else in future, should be to help facilitate and support that. And we want to reinstate that idea and see major system change to bring it about. I hope that's a good summary to begin with. I'm going to explore it a bit more. I think there's a number of things that strike me as very interesting in what you said. One, you said that it's arose from despair, but it's built on hope or a similar way of putting it. And I think that's a very nice way of describing how I think many people would feel about their situation, looking at social care and debates about social care and a lot of frustration with how it's being developed, how it's being discussed. Similarly to what you said about all the debates being about money and, and about organizing here and shuffling there. We can see in many countries that the focus is, yes, on funding and then on should it has this label or that label and should it be called this kind of service and that kind of service. Nobody much talks about what is the actual purpose of those services yeah. of care. Is there some, as you said, higher purpose to it to allow people to have full lives and lead full lives? And also another element I would highlight right away is the emphasis on having everybody in the room, having a conversation together on equal footing, be that service providers, uh, service users, or their family members or anybody else who has anything to do with care. And I think that, of course, is something we would very much share here at Inclusion Europe, but it's also still not present in most discussions and about care. So those definitely are the, the things that stand out to me. To go a little bit back to social care future itself. Social care future has five pillars of care. Number one, communities where everyone belongs. Two, living in the place we call home. Three, leading the lives we want to live. Four, more resources better used. And five, sharing power as equals. How did you arrive to these five pillars and why these five and not something else? So coming back to this point about the way we operate and the way we encourage others to change is for people who themselves have cause to draw on care or support to be the sort of chief protagonists in the story, if you like, and as key actors. One of the early things that we actually did was establish a commission that was led by people who themselves draw on support. And again, there's been lots of commissions in the UK over the last sort of 20 years about the future of social care, and they have from time to time involve some people who draw on support, but often that's not the case. It's providers, it's academics, it's think tanks, it's policy makers. We wanted to change that. This wasn't to the exclusion of all those people, but it was to flip it so that the people leading it were the people who we believe matter most in all of this, without whom there wouldn't be a need for any social care system and lots of people wouldn't have jobs and opportunities to kind of talk about the future. It was chaired by one of Social Care Future's conveners, Anna Severa, and then there was a number of other people on that commission who either themselves drew directly on support or who supported somebody who draws on support, all of whom were already, I guess, committed to the kind of values which you would probably describe as independent living, or exemplified by Article 19 of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. But that commission was to kind of work out, in their view, what would the future look like? What were the kind of key goals of that future? There's something that influenced us a lot was there's a guy called Thomas Coombs, and he was previously, I think, assistant director of communications at Amnesty International. And he stepped down from that role, I think, out of frustration at the way the human rights community, he felt, was very good at pointing to lots of violations but rarely ever described what the world would look like if human rights were being respected. And he felt that was a real deficit in both their communications and their strategies and so on. And so we wanted to embrace that a bit. So in a way, those five areas are pointing to where we want to get to rather than simply what's wrong. But they're also a powerful way to reveal what's wrong. I think one of the problems we have at the minute is we just talk about care. Nobody really understands what that means. It doesn't translate into an idea of how people's lives are being lived or not. So in a way, this idea about hope, it's not a woolly idea. It's saying we have to raise expectations in order that people see the injustice of the current system. 
and they have to see it in a way they can relate to and empathize with. So if you look at those those five areas, that they're universal goals. Everyone ultimately has a desire for belonging, a desire to be able to live the lives that they want to lead and so on. These are universal aspirations. What doing it this way allows us to do is then actually reveal the deficits between those kind of shared goals and kind of where people's lives are. And then to the failures of the system, the need for the system to change and the ways we want the system to change to achieve that. So that was the purpose. It's a very long answer, but effectively they came out of a process led by people who themselves draw on support. But they also use language that we spent a long time developing both with our own network and then through public audience research. So we worked with specialist agencies on framing and language, and we tested it extensively with public audiences to make sure that it would kind of land with them as well. The language element, I definitely want to talk about in more detail. We'll get to that in a minute. What I would like to maybe get back a little, you mentioned now in talking about the five pillars, but also previously, the word change. I think that's a strong element of what you are trying to do and what the whole social care future is about, making sure that change happens, that it's not just words. You talked about the former director of Amnesty International, if I got that correctly, with kind of frustration that I think maybe personally I would share with some of the stuff that we can see around a lot of advocacy and communication coming out of different organizations, including in the disability sector. And that is pointing out all the things that are wrong in the world. There are obviously many things that are wrong in the world without suggesting much about how to change them. Yeah. Or as you said, what the world would look like when the things would be right. And I think that's a significant part of the role that we as NGOs and Inclusion Europe, we have to help people understand, picture, visualize the world we are advocating for, the world we want to see. And that I think just wanted to highlight as a strong thing that that in, in what you are doing there with, with everybody else in the social care future. This isn't my quote, but it's of something that a woman called Annette Shankrasario, who is a US-based communications expert, always points out that Martin Luther King didn't give up, we have a problem speech. You're no less uh, aware of the injustices he was pointing to, but the power came from the vision, the idea of what the world should and could be like. And in that speech, his appeal to American values was so kind of powerful in, in pursuing that. That's what this is about. There's a one sense of how do you inspire people? What, what is it you're asking people to get behind rather than to be against? That's the first thing. And then secondly, you have to give them a believable plan. They have to believe it's possible because so much of what we're hearing about social care would just say social care is in crisis, it's broken, it needs several billion pounds and that probably won't be enough. So what was happening over time, we believed, was that fatalism sets in. People shift from thinking something must be done to actually thinking, well, maybe nothing can actually be done about this. We have to inspire people, we have to create a sense of urgency and injustice, those are still important things, but actually there also has to be a sense of what the direction is, where we're trying to get to, and it has to be believable that you can get there. Because if it's not, people will just think, oh, oh dear. I certainly think we see that in the debates around institutionalization around the world. There was a BBC news piece the other day, which was incredibly powerful about deinstitutionalization in Ukraine, which is, is clearly kind of crucial. And it was amazing. It was the one o'clock BBC news about the new UN convention, the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities guidance. I was watching this thinking, this is so weird just to see that guidance featuring a major news item. And it was really powerful. But then I was thinking, that's setting the bar so high about what we're actually talking about here. It's actually creating a sense that this is institutionalization over here and that this guidance is about that. These extreme kind of violations is what we're about. We see a whole kind of gamut of stories in the media around people living in care homes or in their own homes not getting enough support it's usually features somebody with living with dementia and it's terribly distressing to watch and it's sad and you feel oh this is really awful but there's never the alternative is there a different way of doing this to get behind i think that's the point so we've always tried to as well as this high level vision put forward what we call glimpses of the future and that's really important to be able to actually point to the ideas the practices lived experience where things can be different and to say that this should be what's commonplace, not these bad things. So we're not talking about some impossible dream. 
we are talking about something that is real and can happen. It's the point in between those two things that then matters, which I think is what you're alluding to. Clearly, there's a reason why these things aren't more commonplace. And that's what we've got to actually resolve. And that's when it becomes a question of how do you affect system change? How do you bring that change about? I think our big insight, which still kind of trying to gather support for, is that what's never been done in the UK is any major public facing campaign to shift the public's imagination, their expectations about how people should or could be able to live their lives if we organise things differently and to be able to describe what those things are. We have seen that in the area of mental health, for example. There was a major campaign for a decade called Time to Change. Whilst things are far from resolved in mental health, you have seen the public debate dramatically shift from 15 years ago where mental health policy was nearly all about public safety. It's now nearly all about well-being and that the kind of lives of people with mental health problems much kind of better understood. You've seen it on LGBTI rights as well with equal marriage, a massive shift in how we think and talk about that. So that's what this is about. It's not about the policy detail necessarily. It's about the overall culture, how people imagine. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, that's exactly a fascinating point always for us at Inclusion Europe, representing people with intellectual disabilities and families and kind of observing the world around. And of course, I will always say that there is development and there is progress and we must be aware of it. Then you look at it and you see some movements that you just mentioned, like make dramatic leaps in their campaigning, in their advocacy, in their rights. And then you see people with intellectual disabilities in most respects being still treated the same way they were a hundred years ago. And it's like, what's the difference here? What happened there? I think it's an important conversation to have how those movements were able to achieve such dramatic progress and what we can learn from that as well. And a lot of it to me is what you were just talking about in the hopeful communication, if, if I can summarize it like that. I think gains have been made. They're not universal, but in a number of countries, we've moved away from large scale hospital style institutions to different modes. But of course, the frustration that's emerged is that rather than achieve community-based living, we've ended up in this kind of halfway house, which is almost institutionalization reimagined, but on a different scale, we've still got a way to go. I think the clue, if you compare the movements that we talked about and the change they've achieved, when we talk about people with intellectual disabilities, and we taught people enough about what was wrong to motivate some change, but we've as yet to convince people about what is ultimately right, sufficient to motivate the next stage of change. And that's where this hope idea or possibility is probably a better word than hope. People have to have a sense that something is possible and the injustice is that we're not doing that thing. If you believe that you can do something, but we're not doing it, and there's no really good reason why we're not doing it, that's a more powerful engine of change than this is really hard and really difficult. I was following on Twitter the week before last, the NL Freedom Drive. I was just following a Twitter feed, but it was nearly all, this isn't happening, this hasn't happened, this is failing. If that's all people hear, ultimately, they'll start to think, well, maybe that's because it's just not achievable. Maybe it's just a pipe dream. Maybe we can't do it. And there are forces that still do believe that this ultimate vision of people being living ordinary lives is not achievable, including within the community of organisations that exist in theory to support people with learning disabilities, but certainly in relation to older people an age where we really haven't fully embedded that idea. That's the other thing, it's how do you create a positive story of change that is believable, desirable, that people can get behind, that's compelling, that speaks to everybody's values. That's what we're trying to do. But underneath that, the work we're doing is also to model the practices and the possibility and the ways to actually make that happen so that it becomes ever more irresistible, if you like. This to me personally is absolutely fascinating. I'd be happy to discuss it for much longer because it's the preoccupation with how to actually make it happen and how to communicate on these things is something that is very close to what I'm interested in predominantly. And maybe I would just add, there is one element with what, what you talked about, the negativity of some communications. You mentioned uh, the, the conference and also the coverage of institutions in Ukraine. Just to follow up on it and add one more layer, I always think that when we as the institutionalization advocates, if we talk only about institutions and presenting them in the negative way, but only about them, 
I think that we very much create in people's minds the impression that they are the only thing that exists. If we never talk about the emphasis on existing alternatives, be that quality, community-based services, be that support within families or anything else, that undermines the overall message and undermines the ability of people to believe that the change is possible. The different world is possible here because it already exists. People just don't necessarily see it. The constant communication on the negative sides, just about institutions, doesn't help to kind of break that mental picture people have. So I think that's just another element to add to it. I think that's exactly it. People have to believe something else is possible. And the most powerful way to do that is to actually just show it happening, number one. The second point is, and I think this is a something that we've done. So Social Care Futures overall vision is a very simple statement. We all want to live in the place that we call home with the people and things that we love in communities where we look out for one another, doing the things that matter to us. That is effectively Article 19 of the CRPD, but written in human everyday language. That's important yeah. because so much of the language we're using in this space is foreign to most of us, even the right to independent living. Nobody who doesn't have cause to draw on support, or doesn't have a disability or an impairment, talks about their right to independent living. It's just language that nobody else uses. Nobody talks about deinstitutionalization. Everybody understands and feels deeply the idea of the place we call home. It immediately brings to mind ideas of privacy and agency and control and love and relationships, all the things that we ultimately are trying to sort of bring about. That's the point of this. Not only how do you create a sense of an alternate possibility, but how do you make that just seem everyday and resonant with everybody? Because ultimately, this is about equality and non-discrimination. But even though people may need different support to achieve that and adjustments and so on, it ultimately is about the universal. And that is what human rights are about, the kind of the universal thing that we share. So I think there's two elements to our communications channel. One is how do you make this make sense to everybody? It's a sort of shared sense of humanity of what everybody aspires to. And secondly, how do you make a sense, give people a sense that this is entirely possible? And if you do those two things, then actually the injustice of institutionalization is seen as even more powerful. If all you do is showing it very distressing images of children in institutions, a lot of people will recoil from that. They'll, they'll kind of switch off. They may not engage with it because they find it too distressing. And B, if you've not done that other work, then it's very hard for people to imagine what the difference would look like. Important message is it certainly is not saying we should not point to those injustices and those harms. It's about how you contextualize. Assuming people that it is possible, something they can understand, imagine, picture that it's achievable, that also allowing them, showing them the trust that they can actually contribute to achieving that goal. That's another important element that I What's think. Agency in, in all of this and what, what can they do about it? What can be done about it? What can you support and get behind rather than what can you just be hor horrified by and oppose? There's a show in the UK, BBC Breakfast, and there's a producer on there, Jane McCubbin, who has done a huge amount of work to highlight the situation of people with autism and learning disabilities in what's called here assessment and treatment units which in theory are only supposed to be short places people will go for a short period of time for therapy and support, but which lots of people end up living in, well, not living in, being stuck in for years and years. And I've noticed one of the things that she and others are doing really successfully is obviously campaigning, highlighting the plight of individuals and their families trying to get them out. But where they have got out, going back and showing their lives. Now. And that reinforces that idea all the time that it's wrong. There is a different possibility. It's perfectly feasible that people can live good lives. If you talked about a kind of a pipeline of stories from organisations like your own or your members, there needs to be this real balance. What are these stories of people living well in the community, how their lives have been transformed, what they're doing with their lives, how happy they are, the contributions they're making? Where is all of that? Because that will cast shade on the bad all the time. It's a lot about not stopping at saying what is wrong, but at the same time showing how things can and already are being done in the right way so people can relate to that, can believe that it's possible to do it. The thing we have to acknowledge, we talked about the shifts that certain movements have made. The reality is expectations of people with learning disabilities, or disabled people more generally, expectations of older people, expectations of what care can do in terms of people's lives are all set so low. The debate about social care is very much coloured by ageism. 
And so really what we're talking about, what most people associate care with is dying, I'm afraid. So they imagine it's the thing that looks after you as you are dying. So they don't see it as human development, as something that moves your life forward. Unless we change that, then every time we talk about care, all these associations just suddenly appear in people's minds and that's where their mindset is. So we have to change that if we want to actually lift expectations up and have a different imagination of what th these systems or how we organise things can transform people's lives. I just think we can do it. I don't think it's impossible to do it. I just think we've not been doing it. Which brings me to, to another piece of work that you've done with Social Care Future that's on language specifically. As we talked about the five pillars of care, listeners could notice the language and we now talked about it, but the words like where we belong, place we call home, distinctly not the language that people would normally associate with a discussion about social care, but also those are the words that are essentially normal language anyone can understand, can use, can relate to. Those words like home and belonging also carry mostly positive connotations. They are clear, they are positive, they are relatable. And I know that with Social Care Future, you did a big piece of work on research on language, which is not so usual in our field of work to actually do, let's say, a communication research and a strictly communication exercise. Can you please talk a little about that, how it was done, what came out of that? Before I was working on Social Care Future, I was, I was actually leading a piece of work that was around trying to shift public thinking and attitudes around human rights, generally in the UK. I'm not sure whether we've been successful at that or not, but it was about language, about values, about how we communicated. So I ended up being exposed both to that work and the thinking behind it, but the fact that lots of other fields were also employing these methods or beginning to whether that was people working on climate change, child protection, poverty, a whole raft of different kind of fields and areas. And so when we began Social Care Future, we just took even just a cursory look at how the whole debate was being framed in the media and in the public kind of debate and just how distant that was from the kind of ideas that we wanted to talk about. So we identified it immediately as a barrier, as a hurdle that we were going to have to get across and set about trying to do a similar approach using, it's called reframing or narrative change. That's what we wanted to do. But actually the thing that we focused on was how to articulate our vision and to describe the change that we felt would be necessary to bring about that vision. And so we followed good practice as well as the research. And we also, in keeping with our principles, co-produced um, the vision. So we worked a lot with our network and our members to develop what's called the untranslated story, which means the words and the ideas before you've done all the research. So it really spoke to where people are coming from. The very first thing we did, we met in Manchester and we did this exercise, which actually was supposed to just be an icebreaker, but it turned out to be quite foundational. And it was a way to create that sense of equality in the room because it was a real mixed group. We had people with self-advocates with learning disabilities, mental health conditions. We had academics, we had directors, of social services providers all in the room the thing we asked everyone was to not to think about it much but just to respond when they heard the word home or the place they call home just to say what came to mind immediately and it worked really well we've done it lots of times since what came to mind for people were ideas of control of privacy of agency of love of relationships of belonging all these things just flooded into people's heads and that was the starting point that was a real change for us because it just suddenly made something so obvious in terms of what we could potentially do. Because if we're about deinstitutionalization, we're not about the thing of closing something down. We're about the thing of creating something good. And that good thing is embodied in that idea of home, of place, of being anchored, of feeling part of your community, of having control. So all those things emerged out of that. And that was really where that headline vision came from. And in fact, that never changed once. We did all the research. We never had to shift away from that idea that we all want to live in the place we call home with the people and things that we love and so on. But actually underpinning it is something really important because as well as this language of crisis and things being broken and not really having any sense of what social care or support was there to do, the values that were inherent in the dominant debate are all incredibly paternalistic. So it's all about looking after vulnerable people who can't look after themselves. 
which again as a value set really works against the idea of independent living or community-based living. So that statement is deliberately written in a way that actually conjures up a whole set of different values. So the values it conjures up are self-direction. So being able to do the things that matter to you, being able to choose where and with whom you live are all in there. Security and belonging. Security is really important. Being anchored in place, feeling a sense of control of, you know, home as a kind of haven and those sorts of ideas. And then thirdly, and this was really important, it leans towards reciprocity, mutuality, the idea that this isn't about a group of people who are just being looked after or done to. This is about being part of the whole and contributing to your community as well. So these were very conscious things and they're all wrapped in a very simple statement. It's quite evocative. It's very universal. It doesn't mention care and it doesn't mention older or disabled people. It just speaks to everyone and that's deliberate. But there's a whole other element to it after that which unpacks into the change that we actually need to deliver that aspiration to everyone and there is also some important bits of language and change what we noticed was wherever social care is talked about the heroes of the story are nearly always providers of social care or workers the heroes of the story are never people who themselves have cause to lead a better life we deliberately swap that around. So we talk about people who draw on support to live their lives, which is just a simple bit of language which has really caught on here, or rather that we draw on support to live the lives that we want to lead. But it's about changing the kind of the elements of the story about who the chief protagonist was in the story. And again, reinforcing that idea that social care is not an end in itself, it's a means to an end of a kind of better life that everybody aspires to. And then just finally, I think there was one other thing that we wanted to change, and that was to get away from the idea that social care was just a service delivered to people, to the idea that actually it's about drawing together all sorts of different threads of formal and informal support, and it might be technology, it might be relationships and informal networks, again, around the person's own goals in life. We talk about the idea that when organised well, social care is about weaving a web of relationships and support or nurturing an ecosystem or it's the glue that binds together these different things. And that was very deliberate. And I would actually say of all the things that we created in that vision, that's still been the hardest idea to really get across. There is this real fixation on the idea of talking about social care as a system or a sector, as though it's one thing delivered to people. And we're still trying to pull away from that idea into something else. Maybe just still on the same question a little, just on practically how it was organized. Because I said this is not something that is very usual for, to have social care debate, really do a proper communication, research and exercise. So just briefly on the practical, what it was about, like in practical yep. terms, the communication exercise, the research. We did it in a number of stages. Various organisations would usually go through these, but there was an organisation in the US called Heartwired, and there's kind of four stages to the process. So that the first is, which is often forgotten in these exercises, but it's really important, is change. So being really clear, what's the change we're all trying to bring about? And I mentioned this meeting in Manchester and other discussions. So us just sitting down and being really clear with ourselves, what is the change that we're trying to kind of bring about? What would people's lives look like? How would the system need to change? What are, what are things that government and others would have to do to bring about that system change so at a high level? That was the first stage. Then it's called landscape. We did a whole load of work with a number of different organisations to map how this debate was talked and thought about now. What do we know of the existing evidence that was out there? We worked, for example, with the University of Lancaster, have this centre for corpus linguistics. They have a piece of software and they were able to tell us how social care was talked about across, I think, about five and a half thousand newspaper articles in the previous two or three years, and sort of build this map of the kind of language and the ideas and the metaphors that were being used. The Frameworks Institute did a number of on-the-street interviews for us with members of the public, and this was just like what's top of mind when they think about social care. And then we looked at some of the advocacy materials of campaigners who had been in that space and did a sort of rather rudimentary but useful mapping exercise to see how they've been talking about it. So we had that map and then what we did is what's our story and what's the story that's out there? Then look at the, the contrast between the two. That's what revealed the framing challenge. If we want to see our story take hold, we have to find a way to get past this. That was the first stage of work. The second stage was we worked with an organisation called Equally Hours that are experts in framing and then with a public communications agency called Servation 
and we designed research with the public. There's a number of stages to that, which I won't get into, but it was qualitative and quantitative work to really get ahead further around how the public thought about this stuff, but then to begin to introduce them to our vision and to see the things that landed well or to see the things that didn't at all and just change it and refine it as we went through that. And then it ended with a survey of, I think, 3,000 people in England and they were presented with slightly different versions of the vision and we were testing which did or didn't work well. It's an imperfect exercise. I would love to have done a lot more of it. Others have spent significantly more money on this, but it's the first time anyone had tried it. And as I said, I think elements of it, like the headline vision is everywhere. The language of people drawing on support is everywhere. Other bits of it around ecosystems of support and webs but that's not really landed in the way I would have hoped so we're probably going to do a bit more thinking and work on some of that soon actually and see if we can develop it this was just the research and us using it and encouraging other people to use it we are at the minute scoping out the idea of a major long-range campaign focused almost solely on changing people's attitudes and imagination expectations so I think part of that will involve some further work to build on that research and to refine some of it and to understand a bit better how the public think and how we might shift that. This is really good to also hear about the practicality of it how it was organized as I said it's not very usual to do this around social care or any elements of the disability related work to have a proper communication research and then testing of different ideas and languages and messages. Really important point. Every key stage of that, we went back to our network and our movement, involved people in exercises. For example, we did a whole sort of session on metaphors with a whole about 100 people generating metaphors and ideas. And those were the ones that we tested with the public. It was this constant loop back to make sure that it's resonated with people who drew on support or worked in the field. And we also had a working group that worked much more closely with us at each stage half of which were people who drew on support, half of which were people who either were providers or worked in local councils or whatever else. It was this principle of co-production drove the whole process as well. And that was really important because I think if we didn't do that, we'd have got to the end of it and it would be language that was just too uncomfortable for people to use or would have probably departed people's own sense of how they wanted to talk about their own lives. So I think that bridge between lived experience on the one hand and the research and what it was telling us how to most effectively persuade the public on the other was really important. So it wasn't research in a laboratory or academic research. It was very much action based. But of course, Dave, it's a crucial element of underpinning anything that can have any hope of achieving change in this yeah. respect. We spent now quite a bit of time discussing language and framing of conversations about care. By this stage, I think some listeners will start thinking that this is all very nice and well. But how useful is it to me here when I'm as a family member or service provider struggling to find resources to support people? But of course, now with the staff shortages across many countries that impact heavily of, on service provision and then obviously on people's lives or now again with another layer of the cost of living crisis, its impact on people and on running services. So there is the element of language and communication and advocacy for change, but well, how relevant is it to me now if we are struggling to just survive from one day to another? What would you say to that and how does your work relate to this element of the topic? My view is it's a false dichotomy. Cotomy, that's not too much of a jargony word to use. Everything's framed all the time. Governments frame policy. Governments frame the reasons why there is a workforce crisis, or the reasons why they haven't invested in social care, which have led us to this sort of point. I think the important thing is it's not just to think about it as communications. Think about it, one of the many tools we have to try and bring about change, alongside using the law alongside using protest, alongside using research and evidence, alongside documenting people's lives and how bad they've become. All those things are part of this. It's not one or the other. I just think that the issue about language and framing is a key element of that. If we talked about the fact that people can't access care or support because there is insufficient spending on it in X country, how do we talk about that? How do we describe it in a way that makes the public and politicians sit up and listen? Well, that's framing. It's not either or. It's always relevant. 
uh, it's not a luxury beyond. We're not just just fantasizing about the future. It's immediately relevant that we use that language because it can change the course of debates and change uh, things quite immediately. I think as we're seeing in the UK, as we go through a period of very strange times with our politics and changes in policy and, and practice around the kind of cost of living. It's actually it is about finding a much more powerful and persuasive way to actually address the kind of injustices that are happening this minute. But like anything, nothing will resolve those injustices easily this minute. We're always in a period of trying to affect change over time. That's an inescapable fact, sadly. I just want to add to it as well that this is actually in, included in the broader vision of social care future with the fourth pillar, if I got the numbers right, more resources, better used. So it's, of course, not just about language or framing okay. or behaving, but it's also about clearly saying that, yes, we need resources for people to be properly supported in the way that we are in these visions. And we need the existing resources to be used much more effectively. That's exactly it. There's a polling agency called Mori Ipsos. I think they're international, but in the UK arm of them. Every two months, they publish the findings of a survey where they just ask the public, without any prompts, what's the biggest priorities for the country at any one time? And social care has stayed in about 13th place, about 1% of the public name it as a priority. And it's been there for four or five years, it never changes. It's an issue that doesn't enjoy public salience. It's not a priority for the public. The National Health Service is always near the top, other cost of living will be up there near the top, but this just stays at the bottom. So the point is, again, about language and communications is about changing the importance that the public attached to it. When we did the research, the findings were really powerful because they found two things. One, it changed mindsets. So at the end of the research, the people that we'd serve thought differently. They had a different imagination, a different sense about what this debate was about or what was possible. But they also attached more support to the idea that the government should invest in it than they did prior to the survey. The vision had a double effect. The language had a double effect of doing that. And I think that's really key. But again, I think about the work I've done looking across Europe on independent living, so much focus on just citing the law or on the European Union structural funds. And both those things are really important. But I always wonder in each of those countries, what public or political appetite is there really for change? And what's being done at that level to foster the importance attached to those things and people's sense of what's possible and what's achievable. So it just feels like a big missing bit of the jigsaw in a way. But as I said, it's not the only piece of the jigsaw. Using all the other tools we have available are also crucial too, including movement building, I think, building both the power of people who themselves have caused to draw on support, which of course has been the growth of the disabled people's movement. But I think looking beyond that to kind of allies in the kind of wider public who are also pursuing social change, maybe in what might seem like disconnected or other fields, but often we find quite quickly we share quite a lot in common about the world we're trying to ultimately bring about. I think a lot of the framing about social care around the European care strategy is painted almost entirely in negative terms. So there's these metaphors of a demographic time bomb or a silver tsunami that Despite the fact that we've suddenly decided that this major achievement that many of us are living longer lives is now a huge threat to our economies. The focus often is on how you avert that threat, how you contain it, how you avoid that threat emerging, rather than the idea of, well, it's brilliant, we're all going to live longer lives. Let's make sure that we reap the dividend of those longer lives and make these adaptations to our societies that allows us to do that. That's not where the debate is. So now our vision is also about confronting that. It's about the idea that we can aspire to have nice things in our lives. <laughs> Wouldn't it be lovely if we could have better health and well-being as we age because we've changed the way we, we organise and arrange our lives. But that's not how the debate is typically framed. That's definitely true. There's an element to it. I want to go into more detail. Before we do that, I'll just say that one of the, to me, fascinating things about how policies and debates around aging are conceived, is, as you said, it's also mostly portrayed as an issue, but it's also conceived like nobody is thinking about the things that we can do before we get old 
to have good life when we are old. So maybe that's another, to me, always puzzling element. It's always just about talking about issues and how do we have provide care and don't ruin the economy. It's never about, as you said, quality of life and supporting people to have that. It's closely connected to one aspect of the social care debates. We can see that definitely here in the European Union context. Care, from our point of view, usually entails people with disabilities and entails older people. Social care future, you look at both of these demographics and there is a tension between some elements of the conversation and especially how the disability rights-based arguments apply or don't apply to older people. And most, I would say, we can see in policies and in debates that basically when people get old, they stop being disabled apparently because no longer the disability rights apply to them, even if they applied throughout their previous lives. And I know that this is something that you've written about, thought about. So can you talk about this element a bit, please? I think this has got a long kind of history because the disability rights movement was at least largely driven by younger disabled people. What's interesting now is that many of those people, in part through their own successes, are kind of living into older age. So there's some interesting change emerging there, but resisted ideas of associating disability with age because the key part of it was resisting ideas of institutional care, not wanting to be sort of seen as economically unproductive or inactive and so on. So in a way, inadvertently, the disability rights movement has potentially reinforced ageist assumptions and therefore left out disability in age or amongst ageing. Conversely, I think in modern times, organisations that have been trying to confront ageism very much have tried to resist ideas of association between age and disability. The accent is all on healthy and positive ageing, these images of older people are all about youthfulness, oddly. And so what happens there is that the biggest group of people of all who experience impairments and health conditions, which is about older people, become invisible in the debate. And we don't really have that same force for change to confront their life experiences, which too often are characterised by segregation, and low expectations and institutional care. There's almost an tacit acceptance that's different when you get older and that's all right. Then I think there's practical realities. So the thing really caused me to, I mean, I was already thinking about it, but genuinely confront it in the last decade was that my dad had Alzheimer's and he died two years ago this September. I kind of immediately sat and just thought, I'd go around talking about this stuff and researching this stuff and advocating this stuff. What does it mean to him and us in this context? And frankly, I came to the conclusion that it meant everything. It meant just as much. The thing that we need to just always remember is in people's own lives, it means what it means to them and their lives and their families and their situation and how they experience their impairment and whatever else is going on. But those principles around being in the place you call home, about agency, about control, about a sense of belonging around being recognized for what you have to contribute or gifts and talents, they remain important to everybody because fundamentally it's about your personhood and the root of respect for human rights is respect for personhood. I've come to the conclusion that these are universal ideals. They're just as relevant in the last minutes of our life as they are in the first minutes of our life, but that we have to be flexible in how we imagine their interpretation in people's own lives and we have to see it as contextual and i think one big thing is we have to get past this artificial divide between disabled or older people or carers or whatever else these things affect the lives of countless people whose lives are shaped by it, whether it's parents of disabled children or disabled adults who remain their primary supporter whether it's the situation of my mom as my dad's dementia progressed and her life had to change I think there's power and opportunity in that because I don't think anyone aspires to the systems that we have at all. Everybody really knows ultimately that these systems are not what people aspire to or wanted and they don't leave any of us feeling good about ourselves often or the world we live in. Very few of us in our 60s or 70s are sitting there thinking, well, I hope in a few years time I'm in a care home. But then many of us find ourselves, and I did, thinking, this situation is no longer sustainable. We have no options but to think about a care home. You, then you spend your life feeling kind of guilty and you know that somebody's and your own lives are depleted as a consequence. I think it's how we kind of change those expectations. 
Well, I don't know if I'm right, but one thing I feel is we still centre the debate around care and older people on this imagined idea of older people, which I think is already really out of date. So almost whenever we see a story about care homes on TV or, for example, the Queen's Jubilee recently, it's in a care home and they're singing songs from the 1940s. The people who are moving into care homes today were punk rockers in the 1970s who loved the Sex Pistols or like the Smiths in the 1980s. It's all changed and I think people's aspirations are changing. And I think the field and the sector has not yet played catch up with that, like it will have to. And the other thing that's had a much bigger imprint than we realised is COVID. I think a lot of people are looking and thinking, not only the risk of disease, but the idea of moving into some form of institutional care and then being completely locked away or not having the freedom to see family and friends and come and go in the police, that's going to cast a long shadow as well. So I think we're at a moment of change and I get a sense that older people's advocates in Europe and elsewhere are recognising that and are thinking differently about it. It's never really thought about people living with dementia, for example. They've been utterly peripheral to that debate. And that's inexcusable, isn't it? I mean, why is the disability rights community not thought about people living with dementia and their rights? It's almost like it's an inconvenience to them to do so. So I hope that dialogue begins. There's definitely a lot of that we, from the disability movement perspective, would need to start thinking about and having conversations about. And then some of the elements you mentioned, I would maybe also add to it something that probably would be worth exploring in this respect for us in particular as the intellectual disability movement and that's the issue of legal capacity that I think we'll share with a lot of people with dementia that obviously an important and a big issue and not discussed on the grounds we could have some beneficial conversations on this from these different perspectives. So it was important to bring this element into this conversation and I think we can from the European level and, and it's, uh, in every state in Europe, see there is a clear dividing line between the disability services, whatever their quality and whatever the frameworks, and the older people services. And I increasingly think that there is actually now a deliberate attempt to divide these in policy and then to employ the terminology that will be different for each category of social care, essentially. So to avoid, for example, the older disability rights related troubles like the institutionalization and independent living and all these things, to avoid having these kind of difficult conversation, the older care sector will employ a different language to that and completely different frameworks. That's what I think is increasingly visible. Like the latest example would be the European Union care strategy released a couple of weeks ago, which despite being care strategy, weirdly leaves out people with disabilities from most of it. There are some mentions before somebody catches me for it, like they are mentioned on yeah. one or two occasions. But essentially the document and the merit of the strategy is about children and then about older people. That's an example of what I had in mind here with the clear divide of trying to distinguish and avoid some of the disability rights conversations and challenges to avoid them having with the other peoples. Even though the accent may be on ageing or on children, what's lying behind it, and I think the reason the European Union is locked into it, is really the question of gender equality. This is really important because there's a major campaign in the USA it has been hugely successful called Caring Across Generations. It managed to get the Biden administration to at least try and commit huge amounts of significant expenditure on home-based care. And it talks about care as essential infrastructure. And that campaign makes the link between childcare and adult social care and ageing and everything else. And actually, it's got quite a lot of support from disability rights advocates, but it's a feminist-led campaign which is really about the idea of care as something kind of given and the fact that if we don't change, the implications for women in particular and for gender equality will be enormous. And I think that lies hugely behind the European care strategy. So actually the drivers aren't necessarily the perspective of older people and their organisations, although that's kind of locked in. It's coming from a different place. If disability rights advocates don't engage with that and try and shape some of that debate and find an accommodation with it, there's a risk that they will lose it. 
And I think it's unfortunate because it just always adopts the language of caregiving. And it's never starts from the point of view of what it means to live your life and the role of support therein. And that just gets lost in the debate. And if that gets lost, then the structures and the policy solutions and the things that we find will all be orientated towards an idea which is kind of re relieving us of the burden of caregiving rather than it being something of value to invest in because it changes people's lives. I was just trying to remember what was the opposite to, to word to caregiving mentioned in the document. I think they used the care receiver, which <laughs> really exactly. struck me as a very odd uh, expression. I don't think I've encountered it before. And I think that now that you described it, it maybe makes more sense why they use this particular language. That kind of binary idea that there are people that give and there are people that receive is one that Social Care Future just rejects. Absolutely. It's not how most people experience that. We're talking about husbands and wives and mums and daughters and dads and so anyways. These things happen within relationships and then even within a kind of professional context. The idea that there isn't any kind of reciprocity in play or that people aren't kind of mutual benefits. As the disability rights movement is always at pains to point out, if you employ a personal assistant, you're giving somebody a job. And that gets lost in all of this. It reinforces the idea that there's objects of care and givers of care. That's a really unhelpful way to start the debate. But that's what happens where the starting point is slanted in one direction. And particularly because we've not had the strength of advocacy from older people's organisations about the importance of personhood and agency and choice of control. It's much easier to sort of frame care in that way as just looking after the vulnerable or whatever phrases that you want to use. I'm now just thinking about what you said. I think there's an important element to this is the reality that obviously many and they are mostly women, so that's why it makes sense as you like the feminist perspective coming in. That they lack the support they would need. And that applies both to the people, let's say from our point of view, people with disabilities directly or then, then some support to their family carers. And that, of course, if they are in a situation and there is an absolute lack of any kind of support or just very tiny things that they can rely on, that influences their perspective on things, of course, and mm -hmm. that influences how they perceive what needs to be done and that maybe drives it towards the language and the, and the framing and some of the ideas that we just discussed here. I think just to illustrate it, maybe from different context here, but similar dynamic, a lot now with the war in Ukraine, we were working a lot with our member in, in the country and trying to support people who remain in Ukraine, including in the occupied and then directly targeted areas. And those are mostly older mothers who care for their now adult sons and daughters with intellectual and, and other disabilities who already didn't have very good support before the war. Now they lost basically yeah. all support structures. And this, of course, means sometimes that what they tell us and what they talk about could be construed as slightly problematic sometimes. I'm talking about the situations that they are in daily, basically having to provide support 24-7 because there is nothing else. There is nowhere to go. There's curfews. There's air raid sirens. There are often stories, of course, of aggression from their sons of daughters who have hard time coping with all, even just the changes to their daily routines, let alone the more dramatic aspects of the situation. I think if the people in that situation completely lack any kind of support, that of course very much plays into how they think and how they frame these things and that definitely feeds into these narratives. I think we have to confront this and find a kind of bridge. You remember famously women in Iceland mounted a strike, didn't they, where for a day they just didn't do childcare, adult care, you know, and dramatically changed Iceland's politics since then in terms of the makeup of the parliament and everything else. It's true that we make policy about care and support, whether for children or for adults, on a complete assumption that there is this reservoir of unpaid labour largely carried out by women. If we're thinking about deinstitutionalisation, are we thinking about deinstitutionalisation through the lens of still promoting gender equality? Are we imagining that we will close these institutions down and these mothers will actually pick up the tab? Those people are allies, potentially, but if we're not having the conversation about the kind of support that's going to help 
their sons or daughters and themselves, because very often they will still be heavily involved in their sons and daughters' lives, no matter what, especially if we're not talking about people just being moved on mass into institutions. I think one of the things that ideally we need to do is to try and stop talking about givers and receivers, carers and cared for. Actually, what a lot of people aspire to, again, I think about my own parents, my mum became a carer by osmosis, but she saw herself ultimately as, as my dad's wife. She wanted to maintain the relationship, and he did, that mattered to them. But imagine if we thought about support through that lens. So it's not about person-centred support, it'd be about relationship-centred support based on the kind of consent and the goals of all parties. We've let, let some of those ideas kind of slide. We talk in this very individualistic sense. We don't recognise people as part of relationships and part of communities and how important that is and how support should honour and uphold those things and not put unreasonable stresses on them that can place all parties at harm in the way that you were describing. It's a really crucial debate that we have to have and I think we need to sort of shift the way we're thinking and talking about this stuff. It means sitting down with people who sometimes the disability rights movement has been at war with like carers organizations and others and trying to find a different way through again not not something that i thought in these exact terms previously but it was something that we talked a lot right in, in the recent years especially in relation to the institutionalization and how in that context the focus in social care services is on building houses and then moving people into those houses and we try to say build relationships not houses we don't have anything against housing people need to live somewhere but in the context of social care specifically what we mean is focus on people being able to lead their lives like anybody else would having families having friends having social roles being somebody's friends colleagues at works being experts on something what I'm trying to say here is this something going in a similar direction to what you said about the relationship-centered sub. And it connects to me also with what you were talking about before with the different roles. And it's not a one-way street between the caregiver and care receiver. So even within, let's say, a family between parents and children or between husband and wife, so there is a value that... Uh, care provider receives from that relationship as well. And that's something that we are losing if we define and view care strictly as, let's say, the physical hygiene, these things. A lot of stuff to unpack. A few years ago, I was involved in a piece of research looking at how well things were going on the transition to independent living across Europe. And when we finished the research, the team from Austria did this really clever thing. They did a presentation. And what they'd unearthed was all these images of Austrian politicians stood next to these bright, shiny, new, smaller scale institutions with the EU flag on the front. So technically unlawfully spending the European Union structural funds to do it. But the point they were making, which I think is really crucial, is what's the visual story that isn't a building, isn't a thing, a tangible thing, is people living their lives well in the community relationship where it's not just language. Where's the visual story? What does that look and feel like? And I realized quite quickly that was the case. I did a Google in the UK and it's just picture upon picture of the members of parliament stood next to new sheltered housing units or care homes or whatever. That's the image, this tangible thing, not images of people sort of alongside people who are kind of living well because we've built the social infrastructure and the relationships and the support. So I think that's a big part of our challenge. We come back to the where we began this conversation. How do we tell the story of the world we're actually trying to create? It's not just words, it's images and it's ideas, but the current framing is buildings. We get the money, we build a building, we put people in it. That We've got to change that if we want to kind of get to where we want to, to get to. And the other thing we see, very often the image of social care on Google is a young person's hand holding onto an old person's hand or it's somebody in an institution kind of staring out of a window quite forlornly, always on their own. We could change that quite dramatically if we just had images of people with people. 
There's people in community, people alongside others. There's things we can do without lots of research that would start to attack those ideas. I think that kind of brings the conversation nicely to <laughs> its conclusion, connects with what we discussed at the beginning about how we talk about uh, social care and how, how the whole topic is framed. And of course, it's not just about language. It's much more actually about the visuals as humans perceive much more by visual than we do by words. So I think that's a good conclusion. We covered a lot of important and, and very fascinating topics. If people want to know more about them or about your work, do you have a website, uh, place you could point people yeah, towards? The Social Care Future website, it's all one word, socialcarefuture.org.uk. You'll find kind of details of our work. I definitely recommend it. You'll find there the reports on what we discussed here about the framing of language, the conversation, the pillars of care according to social care future. Also, go have a look at previous episodes on Inclusion Europe Radio. Particularly, I would recommend conversations with Jan Shishka and Julie Beadle Brown about disability services in Europe or with Simo Venas and Reta Mitola about their book, Carrowed Lives, which is based on extensive research about people with complex support needs. I think there's a lot that follows in what we were discussing here today with Neil Crowder. Thank you, listeners, for spending your time with Inclusion Europe Radio. And thank you, Neil. It thank was you. great talking to you. You really enjoyed it. Thank you.